You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Good morning, investors. Bradley here from Watson Estates. It's December 31st, 2020. Oh, wait. No, no, sorry. May 11th, 2020, and we're here to bring some awesome news as it relates to real estate. We are number one on Google Podcasts for Toronto real estate, and I know I've heard of chemtrails, but these snowbirds are really packing because outside my window, it is going crazy outside with snow. Today, I want to go into real estate, but I want to kind of coming out of the weekend, I want to talk about some of the big news that's happened in general. And this isn't even just local, but global as well, because there's beyond just kind of statistics, which is what we have looked at a lot last week as new info came out from the previous month and job numbers and go back and check those out. But today I want to talk about some of the kind of things going on around the fringes. And for example, I want to start off talking about rent rates and whether flat rent rates are good for landlords and tenants, because there seems to be this feud. And I tend to think that flat rent rates is actually good for both parties. And I want to kind of walk through my thinking on this and kind of open up a conversation with some of the investors that watch our content online. Then I want to talk about interest rates and whether they could go negative. And I'm not the first one bringing this up. There's kind of a bit of a controversy between the markets and the Federal Reserve on whether they will approach negative rates in the state. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about what a second wave would mean for real estate prices here in the GTA. Again, I'm not bringing this up as a topic, but I definitely want to talk about it because as people continue to open up their doors, not just in Toronto, but around the world, it is having it's having an impact on the number of cases and therefore will probably require, if it were to become a problem here, another wave of lockdowns in our economy as well, not just a health issue. So these are some of the things I want to talk about. Again, thanks guys for tuning into our daily podcast. This has been a wonderful adventure and I am so excited. The comments are going up, the views are going up, and the info is out. Everybody's staying up to date on what's going on here in the GTA, and it's all thanks to our viewers. So let's get into this conversation about rent rates. So it is my, I've, I've mentioned it a few times over the last couple of weeks, but it is my understanding that rent prices being relatively flat is actually good for landlords and tenants. And I haven't had a lot of vocal outbursts on me. Maybe it's because people like me. That And I get a lot of clients following me and they kind of agree, but I'm also open to criticism. So if you guys disagree, if you think you want to see rent rate, rates go faster, increasing, or if you want to see them come down, please, please, please leave those in the comments because I'd love to hear counter arguments. It helps us as an audience create this framework of thought and everybody needs to know all the facts. But here's some of the reasons why I continue to say that and some of the dynamics that kind of happen in our marketplace for investors and for tenants. So I want to start off with an article that comes out of cbc.ca. This is a new article. It hasn't even really, it's just kind of been based on this thing that was said that hasn't really been, it's just came out of the UN. It actually was a, a special reporter out of the UN mentioned this, but there hasn't been any kind of oversight on it. So it's very early on in this process. So what happens is, this is the article, the United Nations has publicly rebuked a multinational housing corporation for abusing the human rights of its tenants, including thousands in Toronto and Montreal. The UN special reporter on adequate housing, Leilana Farah, 
issued a public statement on April 29th accusing Swedish-based Akias residential of a practice known as renoviction. We've done videos talking about renoviction in the past. A lot of these things were happening when we were kind of talking about rent control, and these are all kind of common conversations. Renoviction is definitely one of the easiest ways to kick somebody out because now there's a lot more protection. If you want to remove a tenant, you need to reimburse them their last month if you plan on moving in. But renoviction kind of still runs as like a freebie, right? Like if you're going to do a major reno, that is a legitimate reason to have someone evicted. And so this person is being accused of using that on a very large scale. I have been told that, there's a quote, that Achilles purchases apartment blocks, often with tenants already living in them, and then undertakes renovations to communal areas and vacant apartments within the block, regardless of need, Farah said in the statement. These renovations are a vehicle for Achilles to charge substantial increased rent to both new and existing tenants, enabling it to circumvent vital rent control regulations, which commonly allow for above control rent increases where modernization works where modernization works are undertaken this girl is like serious with these like can't we just keep it simple guys i i hopefully you get out of some of these podcasts i try not to make things complicated i try and talk in layman's terms because reality is my brain works in layman's terms i am not smart enough to talk like this can we just keep it simple come on we got kids listening to this podcast damn it sorry ignore the damn it parents turn your radio down 30 seconds ago okay Achilles owns more than 3,500 apartment units in Toronto, so they're no small landlord. Toronto-based Achilles executive Shelley Lee denied people are being mistreated or forced from their homes. So here's the thing. There's accusations coming out of the UN and from this reporter. There, the, some of the headlines, just to kind of skim it, renovations have been nonstop, couple says. They're often renovating when renovation isn't necessary. So these are the accusations. We scroll right all the way through these accusations and the conversations of some of these challenges going on. And then it says this. Farah told CBC Toronto she sent Achilles a letter about two weeks ago warning that she was about to release a statement accusing the company of abusing tenants' human rights. She said her full report won't be available for about another six weeks once it has been reviewed by governments in Canada, the UN, or sorry, UK and Germany. So there you go. So this is still very early on. It hasn't been fully reported. These guys feel bad for them because they're going to be under a ton of scrutiny. They're valued at $13 billion and they have 44,000 units around the world. So that's just one aspect of where a, a dramatically increasing rent rate, What this is kind of the, the repercussions of that. It creates conflict like this. It creates scrutiny on the landlords, which even if you're a small guy, maybe you don't have $13 billion worth of investment properties, you are going to be the one who has to face crazy decisions like rent control, things that are put on you because of other people taking advantage, big or small, doesn't matter. And so generally, I my my perspective on this, talking with kind of hundreds, I don't know if I could say thousands of investors, but definitely hundreds of investors on this topic, a lot of them generally agree they want things to be stable. Like we're not looking for excessive rents. Where the excessive rents come in, is when prices are going through the roof, because then the question is, is, well, how am I going to be able to cover my costs, right? So that's generally the conversation. It's not just about, I want to gouge, I want to kill. Whereas I think tenants think it's just all about the money because we hear stories like this, where for some people, maybe it is. And it, they create a really bad picture. But landlording is more so about growth, especially in the city of equity. It's a heck, a equity. <laughs> that was a mix of words. Heavy equity investment. It's not a cash flow Necessarily investment, at least not anymore. If you want cash flow, go outside the city. 
We do podcast interviews with gentlemen outside the city all the time to kind of share that because I don't think if you want cash flow, you should be looking downtown all that much. What a lot of investors who are about downtown, by the way, what they do is instead of necessarily investing in units, if they don't have a ton of money per unit, is they'll do large pre-construction type. Like So, for example, we were speaking with a gentleman, Casey, and you're going to have that interview, Casey Wong, appearing on Wednesday this week. So keep an eye out for that. He's been working on pre-construction projects, right? Because he's finding that cash flow isn't good enough. And so he's getting a little bit more creative with his investments. And that's how you stay relevant. But landlording is not for everyone. If you need an extra $100 to break even, then you got to get out of the city. Investors downtown, they really, like I said, they shouldn't be necessarily look at cash flow. Now, cash flow is a good thing, right? But what a lot of investors will do is because you're paying down if you have a loan, which is, I mean, unless you have 100%, you're going to have some kind of loan, you're going to be paying down a portion of that loan amount. And so even though you might be out of pocket on a monthly basis, you don't need to put that much in order to come on, kind of come to this break even on an annual basis based on your equity pay down compared to the money that's been kind of going. So here, here's let me kind of simplify things here because that, that was getting a little crazy here. Let's say you've got a unit, right? And you're paying, I don't know, $4,000 on this mortgage. Let's say, for example's sake, that half of that is going into equity pay down. So really your cost in your true cost is only 2000 It's not 4000 some people are so caught up on that 4000 because that's what's coming out of their pocket each month. But if you look at the true cost as an investor, again, you shouldn't be so tight that you can't play this game. Some people aren't interested in this, by the way, but for those, some people are. And so we have to calculate your true cost as an investor. Anyways, increased rent also increases the price of a unit. This is something that's, I think, often forgotten. Probably because equity growth has been so fast that we've always assumed rent is just trying to keep up with growth of the equity, right? Because your, your costs are going up, your mortgage, da, 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 da. Therefore, my rent needs to go up. But here's the thing. When it comes to investment properties, when your rent increases, so does the price of the unit. So why would this circle back on the landlord? If the rents are super high, I mean, in a normal, in the normal, normalcy of economics, your unit price will be higher. And so affordability will get more and more challenging. And so even you as an investor who's kind of in the market will at some point get priced out. We all get priced out at some point. If the price gets too high, there's a limit for everybody. And so let's not forget that increasing rent also will increase the price. And some of the other signs, so there are other signs or other issues that rent kind of shows us. Okay. So we often think that rent is kind of the final thing because for a tenant, it is right. Like rent is the most important thing. Who cares about anything else at this point? I mean, other than your rights as a tenant, rent is really the big thing is how easy is it for me to shop for a rental unit? And, you know, so, but the thing is, is this is a, this is often an indicator of other issues. Okay. So I'll give you examples. So for example, rent control, and I'm very critical of rent control and I'm not even going to hide it. I understand why people think rent control is good, but mathematically don't look, you don't have to look very far to see rent control actually causes more problems for the tenant than it does for protecting the tenant because it, it leads to things like increasing rent very quickly with the government control that way. So government can have interventions to protect the tenant, but in the form of rent control, bad idea. The other problem that we're seeing that is leading to high rent rates is price acceleration. Because prices have been going through the roof, rents have been following through the roof, and we've been seeing that. Also, a lack of rental apartments, right? 
So when you have a low vacancy or not enough creation of new affordable rental apartments, it has led to increasing in prices, right? Which is where I think government control can actually help because it can encourage people and incentivize people to build rental apartments in order to kind of fix it. So here's the thing. All of those examples I just gave you are things that are currently being resolved, right? Like we don't have strong rent control right now for as far as prices. We don't have huge price acceleration and we don't have a lack of rental apartments because we've got an influx of new rentals coming on the market through via Airbnb. So this explains the stable rates that we're seeing right now. So hopefully this kind of shows you when there's other issues, the, the result is the rent rate. So to say rent rate going up is a great thing, you're actually missing that maybe there's more going on behind the scenes. But let's look at the opposite side. What if rent were to decrease? It can actually become a challenge for landlords as tenants would leave for charge for someone else who's charging you less, right? So let's say let's say you got a $2,100 unit and a $1,900 unit and they're the exact same unit on the exact same street or the same building. Why not just, you know, pack your bags one weekend and move over? It doesn't cost you anything. You just give two months and you've got the place locked down. Why not? And so there becomes this race to the bottom. And so what if you go through the roof too high and then in, a, in an environment where there's extreme fluctuation like we're seeing now, it can come down. That fluctuation isn't good. That's not a good thing in a business cycle. And so... Again, stability is the key. My thinking is ideally the increases should match in the best case scenario, the cost of inflation, right? The challenge is that our property values have been increasing on average about 6% per year. And hopefully I guys, I haven't lost you guys at this point. I think what I've just kind of done in going through this whole exercise is kept the landlords. If you're still sitting here, you're either a landlord or someone interested in investing, which is the guys I want here listening anyways, because you're the ones that are kind of using this and, and creating wealth from it. So thank you for sticking around. But I think that this is very important. This is the type of perspective we need to have. And so, yeah, so I think, I think maintaining the cost of inflation is a good thing. But I do think that here's, here's kind of a final thought. Tenants rent because they can't afford to buy, right? So a lack of affordable units will actually keep them in this rental cycle. So Toronto will continue to turn my, my expectation for the city. And, and any major pockets, really, even in the GTA, we've got some really big cities that are kind of popping up, is we will turn from an ownership city into a tenancy city, like other major markets around the world. So we're not the first to do this. We're kind of like teenagers on the global stage. We're just kind of entering this place. But, you know, New York and London, we've got some other areas that are becoming very serious tenant cities, which isn't a bad thing. It's just a kind of change. And all of this is because of this balance of rent no longer being able to keep up with the quick price growth. Anyways, these are some of my thoughts. If you're a landlord and you disagree, please, please, please leave a comment. Let me know your thoughts so we can kind of hash this out. But generally speaking, those are my, that's my understanding. We want balance and stability is what marks a successful business venture, right? Look, no, look at these different, these businesses that are, that are just kind of crumbling because of lack of customer, lack of consistency. It creates huge problems. You also get businesses that break under increased demand, like over oversized demand can also lead to challenges for a business. So having that stability is what allows us to have some predictable cash flow and growth in the future. All right, let's move on. <laughs> let's change topics. A very good topic, but we're going to go to the next one because I want to start talking a little bit more about the market. So I want to talk right now about interest rates. I'm going to try to pull some of the info that I've shared in the past, some of my insights on interest rates and, and this idea of them going negative. I did do a video a while back. It feels like forever ago now, but it probably wasn't that long ago talking about what negative interest rates would mean. 
And so I'm not just bringing this up as a topic. This article, this is from Reuters.com. Fed funds futures market sees negative rates by next April. The Fed funds futures market is priced in negative U.S. interest rates next year, a scenario that Federal Reserve has said it wants to avoid as many doubt that it would be an effective tool to stimulate growth. Setting interest rates below zero would punish banks for leaving excess cash with the central bank. The hope is to encourage lending, in turn, boosting business investment and consumer spending. Okay. One of the things, if you've, if you've kind of checked some of our podcasts, you know my thinking on this is dropping interest rates isn't going to fix the problem we're in today. The problem we're in today is everything's closed and nobody's spending money, not because they can't spend money, because people have money because of these benefits. The reason people aren't spending money is because they want to stay inside and they're being told to stay inside. And so... By dropping interest rates, not going to motivate someone to buy a house that wasn't already motivated to buy the house, right? For example, and and that carries on with other lending practices too. So I would agree with that statement. But what is interesting to me is that the futures market, if you don't know what the futures market is, it's not the market. It's kind of people speculating where the market is going. Now, it's not always the best indicator I've seen in this article as well. But but it's interesting to me that the markets are pricing in in negative interest rates in the US. And the US, by the way, floats pretty much at zero interest rates right now. So if they're going to bring any rates down, they're going below zero, which puts them in negative territory. And just like negative interest rates, if you've never heard of it, it's exactly like it sounds. Instead of you paying interest to borrow money, they pay you to borrow their money, which sounds completely crazy. And the reason for that is because it is completely crazy. And who does that? It's funny because there was a quote from Trump who he was like, well, who, who's paying these negative rates? Like, if we can do that, why not? It sounds like a great deal. But the joke is, is who's paying the negative rates? It's the bank, right? Like, it's the it's the government. The government is the one paying negative rates, which is why it's really bad for our economy. So how does this impact Canada? Because here's the thing. Even though they're suggesting it, it the question is, is what's going to apply to us? We, we have not followed the U.S. in in direct step. Earlier in the year, some of our predictions videos before pre-COVID, there was conversations on what interest rates would do. And interest rates were actually already coming down, by the way. There was conversations that they would bump back up. So people were thinking they were going to come down and come back up. I was even saying at that time, I don't think they're going to come back up, at least not that fast. And this is, again, pre-COVID-19. So now I definitely don't think they're going to be coming right back up. That's that's my thinking, unless there's some kind of economic thing that happens that is outside of my understanding. But as of right now, I think the consensus is interest rates will either go down or stay where they are. But we've also had some very aggressive interest rate cuts. But what makes us different from the states is our benchmark rate is 0.75%. It's not floating on that 0%. So we have room, even if the rates in the states were to go down by a quarter percent like these futures markets are expecting, that still wouldn't put us in negative rate territory in Canada, which is thanks to our Bank of Canada and thanks to the way that we've been running our monetary system is so much more, is so much better, it's so much well set up than it is in the U.S., Okay, so hopefully that gives you guys some encouragement on that, but also some very interesting things, because if we see interest rates do continue to come down, that would mean long term rates on our mortgages would go down. It means variable rate mortgages would be better than fixed mortgages. And also, it means that on the tail end of all this, if and when things start to open up, it means that spending on real estate will go up quite drastically. Refinances will go up. And, and again, all of this is assuming the reduction in risk that a lot of the lenders have been facing, which I think is already starting to ease. So let's talk about opening up, right? So it's a kind of a good segue there. I want to talk about what happens if we get a second wave. In, in the last few podcasts we've been doing, go back and check out our last one. I, I mentioned this. I think, I think I explained it quite well. It was a very pessimistic view of our marketplace, but 
but part of that was I was sharing my my views on it. And so definitely go back and check that out if you want like a kind of a full circle view on everything going on. But what I think would cause a problem here in the Toronto real estate market, if anything, would be something that is a, an additional shock. So I think the shock of COVID-19 and the closures, yes, there's job losses, which which we'll kind of get to in a second. Yes, there's all these other things. There's a lot of fear and all that. But here's the thing. That psychological side has already happened, right? We've experienced that already. So I think even based on some of the more negative numbers, that from here, it's not about whether it's going to go up or down. It's more so how long before the recovery happens. Is the recovery going to happen before the end of this year? Or is the recovery going to take us three years to happen? So all of that to say... When you get an article like these ones that we're about to read, that to me is where there's another bit of a red flag, okay? Because this, if we do get a second wave, a second wave would trigger an additional lockdown, which is new information, which would cause possible price declines, right? Like if we're going to talk about price declines, they're going to happen in the way of additional shock. So let's talk about Germany because they've kind of been going through this really interesting journey right here. (laughs) Germany's journey. Terrible. Germany infection rates rise after lockdown eases as thousands protest, protest, protest. That sounds so much more classy. Protest. They're protesting restrictions. Now, Germany is one of the countries that have been hit pretty hard. And the Robert Koch Institute for Disease Control announced that the country's COVID-19 reproduction rate, or R, has risen to 1.1. Okay. When it goes above 1%, it means the number of infections is growing. It has fallen to 0.7 before Chancellor Angela Merkel bowed to pressure from leaders of Germany's 16 federal states to restart social life and revive the economy on Wednesday. So funny, they were at 0.7, which indicates a declining infection rate. And because they opened up, maybe they opened up quick too quick. I don't know all the details of that, but they have led to an increase in infections. And despite the acceleration in cases and her announcing measures that include more shop Openings and a gradual return to school, thousands took to streets in parts of the country on Saturday to demand an end to all restrictions. So they're getting pretty extreme over there. They're all uh, shaving parts of their mustaches and going a little crazy over in Germany. Okay, forget I said that. Again, shut this off 30 seconds ago. Man, I got to change the rating on our podcast. Rated R. Speaking of rated R, it has to be expected that the R rate will go over one and we will return to exponential growth, he said in a tweet. Here's why this matters, guys. Because Sir Justin Trudeau of our of the Canadian White House, which is definitely white today, thanks to recent weather climates, warns if Canada opens too early, the country could be, quote, sent back to confinement. OK, so this this, in my mind, would be an additional shock to the system. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau warned that if provinces reopen too quickly, a second wave of the coronavirus pandemic could send the country, quote, back into confinement this summer. OK. From an economic perspective, my concern is not that we get a second wave. My, From a health perspective, I'm concerned about a second wave. What my concern is on a second wave is when I hear the prime minister saying he's going to put everyone back in confinement because that's going to have serious impact on businesses. If everything closed again, holy smokes, we got a 10% drop the last time, in, in, at least from a real estate perspective, which I think was outside of the COVID-19. I think there was kind of that was more of a bidding war thing. But anyways, regardless... What kind of impression do you think people are going to have when they start saying, you know what, we were starting to open, but we're going to close it again? Like, what do you think that's going to cause? Again, psychological fear can ruin a market, as we saw back in 2017. We are, quote, still in the emergency phase, Trudeau said, according to Reuters. 
the vast majority of Canadians continue to need to be very careful. So here's the thing. His comments came on Quebec's on an announcement. Quebec begins to open schools and businesses outside Montreal, despite the region counting nearly twice as many confirmed cases of the virus than any other province and nearly 60% of the country's total deaths. Good job, Quebec. You're, you're really nailing it up there. I like to I, I like to run the joke that they were giving him a lot of trouble because he wasn't making his announcements in French. And I think it's just because they didn't understand we're supposed to stay closed. Anyways, terrible joke. I took French immersion. Okay, guys, relax. I'm allowed to make jokes like that. I understand how much people do want to go outside, but we need to do it in ways that we are sure are going to keep people safe. Because the last thing people want is a few weeks from now being told, quote, this is just kind of him, you know, talking in the third person. Okay, we loosened the rules and now COVID is spreading again. And you're all going to have to go inside for the rest of the summer. That would be really funny if someone took that quote of him quoting what he would say and then actually putting it as a news article. That would be so funny. It's like Justin Trudeau says that we're going to have to go back inside for the rest of summer. Oh, my gosh. So Canada is not alone in weighing the crushing economic impact of the novel coronavirus pandemic against the safety of reopening. And then it goes on to talk about the job losses. Go back and listen to our podcast on I say yesterday, but actually it was on Saturday. We did it. And we talk about the job losses and the stats where we had two million jobs in April, which was actually a spike. But that was actually half as bad as what we expected. We were expecting 4 million. And so we actually outperformed. Whereas in the States, they have more than 15% of the country's workforce increasing in unemployment. Just terrible in south of the border. So we're really, we're really nailing it, guys. Good job. Thank you to our leadership. We're doing a good job up here. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infection disease expert, has been warning since early April that the novel coronavirus could likely become, quote, seasonal, as he emphasized the virus is, quote, unlikely to be completely eradicated from the planet. And as lockdowns are relaxed, the U.S. could expect a resurgence in the outbreak later this year. Here's the thing. If this just becomes like a seasonal flu because of, you know, I mean, some people get really mad at me for saying that, but it's true. Like, if this becomes something that's ongoing, where eventually we're just like, okay, guys, we got to open up. Like, it's just, it is what it is. Yes, there's deaths. They're happening in these people groups, but like there's deaths for there's deaths for the flu as well. So there, there, if, if that becomes the attitude, which it could very well be like, maybe we need to maybe that's the the pill people are taking when they're kind of going outside of getting a little bit more liberal with, you know, going out and grocery stores, walking the path or whatever. Maybe maybe that's why. But the the, the point I wanted to take out of this entire segment is that if we see a second wave, that would cause a shock to the system. And that would be really, in my mind, what would hurt the real estate market the most. And this is why there's such a high degree of uncertainty from some of these predictions, because maybe some of them are factoring this in as happening and some of them are factoring if it doesn't. And again, this is this is what I'd be watching for. So hopefully because of that, as a concern, my, my hope is that we do gradually open things up and we kind of keep our finger on the pulse. But here's the thing. This is kind of what I'm seeing out of the provincial government, the liberal government. I have confidence that that'll be the case, that at least if we're pulling things back, it'll be one or two stages. It won't be the entire system, kind of like they're asking for in Germany. So anyways, I'm going to leave it there. Some more info this week. I'm hoping they come out with a mid-month update like they did last month. That would be super cool. And we could kind of see what's going on mid-May. I'd be interested to see kind of what the stuff I want to watch for is the activity of showings. I think showings activity is going to go up. I'm interested to see how that happens. I'm also interested in how months of inventory is changing, if at all. And if the number of sales for the first time passes the number of active listings, which would mean that we are in full force going the other way, but it'll be very interesting to see. Maybe I'm completely wrong. You know, maybe we're going to hell in a hound basket and we will have to wait and see. We're going to continue out with more info. Make sure you're following us on 
Toronto's number one real estate podcast. We are number one on Google Podcasts. Thanks to all of our listeners. Remember, leave us comments, leave us reviews, give us thumbs up. We appreciate everything you guys are doing. We're going to go about our day. Maybe go build a snowman this May. And I'll see you next time. Take care and keep it real. <laughs>